You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone and welcome to the Deeper Wireless Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. <laughs> and today's show is no exception. Today, we're going to be starting our first show of the new year in 2019. And as you, you all should know by now, I devote January to the topic of abortion. And we're going to be talking about that today. And I brought a woman on today who wants to talk about abortion and talks about abortion and social issues and such. <laughs> Her name is Rebecca Valerius. She's a student in the MA Cultural Projects program at Houston Baptist University and has a BA in bio, BS in biochemistry. She is a wife and homeschooling mother of two. <laughs> very short, but very effective. Um, <laughs> Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Did I get the last name right? You did. You did. <laughs> well, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Wow. Um, I guess I'll try to give you the short story. I got into apologetics years ago. Um, as you mentioned in my um, intro, I have a BS in biochemistry. And so pretty early on, I was thrust into these questions of um of faith and um, evolution and atheism. And so I got very much into apologetics then, focusing more on the science um, aspects of it. Um, read Michael Behe's book and Philip Johnson. I think Philip Johnson's book was the first one I read. So I, you know, just grew a passion for apologetics then. Uh, but what really got me into the program at HBU um, a few years ago was I went through a period of pretty intense spiritual doubt um, after my first uh, was born, my first child. And um, I found myself back into the realm of apologetics because um, I had a lot of deeper questions, questions about the um, reliability of scripture, uh, things that I hadn't really gotten into when I was focusing on scientific apologetics as much, um, the, the philosophical aspects of um, our faith. Um, that's one thing I was particularly weak in, as most scientists are. <laughs> most scientists make horrible philosophers, at, at least today. And uh, so I um, began pursuing um, just as much as I could to try to just keep my faith afloat. And um, I, I eventually got out of the dark period and I wanted to pursue it further and found out about the program at HBU and found out that one of my favorite apologists, Nancy Piercy, was there. And so that drew me and the fact that they had several other women on the program and um, their cultural apologetics um, itself is uh, very literary. It's very arts focused. I wouldn't say arts focused because there is definitely philosophy and theology in it, but it seems to be a little bit more integrated than just 
focusing on pure philosophy. And that kind of drew my attention. Um, and so with a the tremendous support of my very patient husband. I entered the program about three years ago and have not regretted it in the least. I have, it's just been amazing. I could put a huge plug in for the program because it, it's definitely been life-changing for me. Not only have I grown as a Christian and as a defender of the faith, um, I've, I've grown in my confidence in my faith, and I've grown closer to the Lord, and I've met some amazing people, um, professors and students in the program. We've had several professors from HBU on the show, and I'm always happy to highlight them. You mentioned women of Alabama. Nancy Piercy has been on. And mm-hmm. Holly Ordway has been on yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we've had uh, outside of women, we've had Jerry Walls on the show. Yes. Louis Marcos has been on. And mm-hmm. of course, my father-in-law, Mike Lacona, and uh, Craig yes. Evans has been on. And we are working on Lee Strober as well. Awesome. That's great. A little HBU plugs then. That's wonderful. <laughs> now, you go ahead. Uh, I just want to say, it's just a gem of a program. Um, And you mentioned uh, Dr. Holly Ordway. She is uh, my advisor right now on my thesis writing, and she's really oversees all of the online um, MAA students. And she's just incredible. She and uh, Professor Ward, Dr. Ward, who is just a well-known C.S. Lewis scholar out of Oxford, have really fashioned the um, program such that it is just, it's, it's an amazing journey. So now you mentioned you got your degree in biochemistry. What exactly is biochemistry? <laughs> well, I actually it's so funny. So biochemistry is really it's chemistry with um, focusing more on bio, uh, biological systems rather than inorganic chemistry, which just focuses on just inorganic systems. Um, I really am a chemistry lover. I only chose biochemistry to kind of appease my dad who wanted me to go to medical school. Mm. <laughs> but medicine was not is not for me. Um, but I, yeah, so biochemistry is sort of looking at the chemistry of biological systems, you could say. And when I graduated, I did four years of research um, at the school that I was highly considering doing my graduate work if I had pursued it in biochemistry at UT Southwestern Medical Center here in Dallas um, in the field of protein uh, structure. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Now, how does this help you in looking at the abortion issue? Well, definitely the science. I would say absolutely, because you cannot argue with the science when it comes to abortion. (laughs) You cannot argue with what is being terminated um, in the act of abortion, a totally unique human life. The, what we know about DNA recombination when the, um, the egg and the sperm meet, what is created is a totally unique individual. Um, and you, you can't deny that. And science, science says it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I find it interesting that so many atheists and such I meet, and let's be clear, there are a lot of atheists out there who are very pro-life. I think Christopher Hitchens was one of them. Yes, but, uh-huh. but so many of them that aren't, they like to talk about scientism so much and how science answers everything. But then when abortion comes up, everything becomes suddenly very philosophical. Yeah, yeah. They go into this nebulous 
concept of personhood and right. and they bring up social justice and and such as that it's the, the science is secondary it goes from a primary position to secondary tertiary even non-existent right mm-hmm. yeah now back up the thing is though i mean looking at your academic values to meet your uh, wife and mm-hmm. you're a homeschooling mother of two and mm-hmm. you're a woman Arguing against abortion, don't you realize you're falling for the patriarchy? <laughs> yes, I'm suffering from a Stockholm syndrome or something. Mm. Yeah, that's one way that I have been dismissed. Um, I, I I have some notes that I had written out here in preparation for our talk, and one of the things that I, I brought up was this idea, and this has happened to me. Time and time again, when I'm talking about abortion in the public square, usually social media, um, it, the fact that I'm a white, you know, middle class white female, um, that those uh, are privileges that um, are used against me, and I am suspect. Either I am giving into the patriarchy and going along and letting down my fellow women by you know, opposing abortion, or I'm suffering from some kind of Stockholm syndrome. And that's how I'm dismissed. That's how someone doesn't have to listen to my arguments. And it's, it's very frustrating. It's very hard to be patient with that. Yeah, but geez, isn't that the case? I mean, shouldn't women be <laughs> in favor of abortion? I mean, this is your reproductive rights after all. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're saying back your career big time. You know this, don't you, right? <laughs> Oh my goodness! You're, so you're going to play the devil's advocate on me? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, oh goodness, yeah. So, yeah, this is this. The, that's the argument. That's the argument. We need abortion so that this sort of holy grail of absolute equality with the sexes can be um, obtained. And um, there is some truth, of course. You know, there's always truth in in arguments, and one of the best things to do when you're arguing with somebody, especially um, on a hot topic like this, like abortion, it's very emotional as you try to find the truth in their argument. The truth is, yes, women are at a greater disadvantage when it comes to sex. Mm-hmm. We get pregnant, men don't. That's biology. There's the science again, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or abortion is a way to sort of overcome that biology and sort of even the playing field so that we can go and have careers and succeed and all these things. But implicit in that argument, and this is um, something that I'm writing about at the moment for my thesis, implicit in that argument is the fact that the public realm of career, um, you know, achievement is more valuable than the domestic sphere of home and family. And um, one of my favorite thinkers is G.K. Chesterton, and I'm doing my thesis on him um, I during my thesis on Chesterton and feminism, and he was dealing with feminism in his day, hundred years ago, with women wanting to vote, and um, and some of the arguments that he was making are extremely relevant today still. And one of these things that he did not like was that the feminists of his day were disparaging the domestic realm, in and elevating the public. And that is what um, that argument does. It says that 
equality is only reached when we can basically have this sort of public life. And um, that is more valuable than being a mother and really even more valuable than being a father in the family. Yeah, I've uh, always found it puzzling because I meet so many women who, or I see so many who complain about men using them, taking advantage of them. And yes, that is a very real complaint. Mm-hmm. They go out and they advocate for abortion. Mm-hmm. Don't you see how contradictory those are? Because abortion makes it much more easier for a man to use you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, it'll be really interesting to see what the whole Me Too movement mm-hmm. has. There is a... What, what you, a cognitive dissonance mm. <laughs> that is because it that the Me Too movement um, really startling reveals this idea that women want to have as much sexual freedom as men, and yet they don't like it when men just behave sexually the way men do without restraint. <laughs> yeah, and and so it's this this sort of dichotomy. And abortion is they argue for years is what makes women. It it sort of evens the sexual market for women. Um, but do they want that? Do they really want that? I mean, do really do women really want to be able to 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 behave horribly like some men do? Not all men at mm. all. But um, male sexual nature, what I think what it's revealing is that male sexual nature is very different from female. And feminists just deny this right and left. They deny science. They deny biology. Yeah, it, it is strikingly different. I've been married for nearly eight and a half years. It'll be eight and a half this month. Mm-hmm. And I know it's the difference between the way we think. I mean... For a guy, I think it's just like, hey, um, it's kind of like free fun, and we get to bond that way and such, so why mm-hmm. not? And women, you all just don't think that way. You think mm-hmm. in terms of much more emotional connection first. In, in marriage, that's a good thing, because the man will then learn to kind of shape up. It's been said marriage domesticates a man. It and does. So mm-hmm. it, it leaves me where if I want to be the lover of my wife, then I have to be changing in such and such a way. And at first it can be done for selfish motives, like many of the things I think we do are. But yes. then after a while, it becomes, this is what you just do naturally. Yeah. Well, the Chesterton has a com as a famous uh, quote. He, I think it's in his, um, he was also dealing with divorce laws changing in his time. And he said the sacred truism of father, mother, child, these are, you know, sort of the bedrock of society and societies that try to deny this only hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. And when man, when male, um, energy is channeled like it is in um, marriage. That's the best thing. It's the best thing for the woman because she has the um, support that a man can give her that she can't give. And there and there are studies that have shown that children need fathers. Mm-hmm. These single mother homes have been just horrible 
for our culture mm-hmm. and just the like I, there are statistics on the incarceration rates of men without fathers. It's just it's horrible for for boys and for men not to have a strong, consistent father in their life. So men are powerful. And so to take that power and to put it into marriage and women, we do have a civilizing effect on men. Chesterton mm. also talks about this yeah. <laughs> and it, it's a good thing. It's a mm. good thing. We, we don't want to over civilize in the sense that we smother them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, women can be smothering. I think if, if you enter into the wrong kind of relationship with a man, you end up mothering him and that's unhappy for yep. both parties. But, you know, there's, we can always pull out the exceptions, you know, of the bad relationships mm-hmm. and because we live in a fallen world, but the ideal is still there. And that's what sh- we should all strive for. Mm-hmm. And, um, our c- culture just denies this right and left. And it, and it, it bases its decisions on the exceptions, you could say, because there are bad marriages, then marriages, marriage is really not that good because there are men who take advantage of women. Women need to be able to have abortions. And the truth of the matter is, you know, most of the time when I'm discussing this with, I I have been discussing abortion since I learned about it in high school. I saw pictures. I, I didn't know anything about it. And then no. someone brought pictures of abortion. And I'll never forget that day because from that moment, I've been pro-life. Mm. And um, and in my many, many times I've discussed abortion with my pro-choice friends that are, most of them are pro-choice. Many mm. of them are pro-choice because they feel like they're being the compassionate ones. Um, they use these extreme cases of rape, but the vast majority of abortions are elective. Um, and so, you know, there's extreme cases, but it still doesn't take away the fact that what we're dealing with is a human life that's being taken. Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, we talk about single mothers. There are some single mothers out there who are doing excellent jobs. Oh, out there. And yes, it's there no, are exceptions. Yes. And, it's, <laughs> and sometimes it's through no problem. My wife and I have a good friend in California, she came to our wedding, dear woman, and she's a widow, her husband died tragically, mm-hmm. and she's been a single mother ever since, been doing a great job, I think even most single mothers would say, if you have a son, it really helps him if he has some sort of male role model in his life you can look up to. Yes, yes, and it's ama- you, yeah, it's amazing when you're aware of that because I, I think the single mother though would still say it's not the ideal, mm-hmm. so she has to find yeah. the alternative, and that's that's fine. We live in a world without that's not ideal, but um, it's 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 still difficult. It's very very hard. Yeah, um, yeah and I think the church is can be better at helping single parents than it has been, um, more cognizant of their needs. You, know, you talked about, we were talking about how uh, men can take advantage of women. Such There was a time a few years ago, there was a law being passed in Texas to make abortion less accessible to mm-hmm. people and such. I don't remember what the name of the law was, but there was a guy who wrote about it and talk about why men need to be a need to stand up for this law against this law and such and stop it. One of the reasons mm. he said, right up blunt, and so many of us will say, Hey, thank you for just coming out and turning like it is. He said, Your sex life was at stake. Yes. Oh, I so appreciate people that are 
that honest. I, mm-hmm. I've, I have a feminist friend that is that honest about it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, you know, I need to be, I, it, this is my sex life and you can't tell me, you can't control my sex life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is like, again, though, that's a denial of biology because <laughs> it's really sex that's controlling her. She's mm-hmm. a, it's, it's biology and the biology of sex and the fact that she's a woman, it's not someone else controlling her. But anyway, yeah, yeah, that's you have to appreciate those moments of honesty. Um, I have a quote here, too. Uh, let me see if I can find it um, that I found. Actually, it's in uh, Nancy Piercy's latest book, Love Thy Body. Which um, we interviewed her on. It's excellent, excellent body, well, she, uh, excellent uh, book. But she mm-hmm. has this quote in there on her chapter on um, abortion. Um, this journalist said, my daughter was formed at conception. And another confl- uh, conclusion is the convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking of taking a life. Yes, abortion is killing but it's a lesser evil. You cannot separate women's rights from their right to fertility control. The single biggest factor in a women's liberation was our newly found ability to impose our will on our biology. The nearly 200,000 aborted babies in the UK each year are a lesser evil, no matter how you define life. End quote. (laughs) So she's brutally honest that... It is an evil, but it's a lesser evil. And actually, I think that many people, most average people on the street, when you talk to them, they're sort of reluctantly pro-life. I mean, pro-choice. They feel like, well, I would never do it, but you have to let the woman decide for herself because it's her body. And so they feel sort of bullied into it by these, by the pro-choice advocates who say, you know, if you don't do this, it's, it's oppressive for women. And, um, so most people take that stance after years, decades, you know, of abortion, people are kind of, um, desensitized to the fact that it's still the taking of a human life. And, and I just, I think the only reason why I haven't, well, my Christianity is one reason why I haven't fallen into that thinking, um, because I tend to be more on the compassion side of things. Um, but seeing pictures of abortion, you just can't take those images out of your head. And that's a human life. Yeah, Rebecca, you said that we'd be going, that Miss Lairton resisting her biology and going against it. But we do that all the time. I mean, we build prosthetics for people who lose limbs. We have vaccinations. Yeah. We do anything we can to prevent biological death. So we're resisting biology all the time. So what's the big deal? Yeah, but um, when we do that, are we saving life or taking life? Well, we're saving it. Yeah. Are we saving a life in abortion? We're taking a life, right? Mm -hmm. We're taking a human life. And so that's the difference. Now, you you are, I'm probably making, what about cases where it is done, for instance, to save the life of a mother? Yes, yes. And I, that is the, the, the exception. That is when it is the mother's choice, her life or her babies. That is when it's her choice. That is, that is when she has a choice because her life has come into it. Now, the pro-choice advocates are very clever because they have defined um, life in such a way that if the mother is going to suffer 
anytime, whether it you know, takes her life or not, she should be able to end the pregnancy. Like if she's going to suffer economically, if she's going to suffer emotionally, she needs to have the right to be able to end the life of the baby. I say that's too broad. You, only when her life is literally at stake and, and it's very clear. And I will say that there are quite a few cases of women who have been in that horrible situation, like when they've come down with cancer when they're pregnant and they choose to forego treatment to, so that they can have their babies and they end up dying from the cancer, but they, they give their baby life. And I really think that that is the essence of true motherhood. Motherhood is caring for children through thick or thin. <laughs> you will, when you have, I remember when I, when I had my firstborn, I remember, I mean, I remember when I got married and I felt an incredible vulnerability for the first time, because here was someone, my husband connected to me such that if anything were to happen to him, I would, their part of me would just felt like it would die. And I felt extremely vulnerable and extremely protective. That was just magnified a hundredfold when I had a baby. And you, as a parent, you realize you would do anything for your child. And that is the essence of true parenthood. You risk everything for them. And so um, I think that's what abortion is eaten away with, really, culturally. It's eaten away at that sort of extreme loyalty to your child and to your family. You know, if we were to get a, a law to be discussed in D.C. and it said that abortion will be banned except for cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of a mother in the terms that you spoke about. Mm -hmm. How do you think it would be responded to by the pro-life and the pro-choice crowd? Oh, oh, the pro-choice crowd would hate it, obviously. Now, the pro-life um, uh, crowd may see it as a somewhat of a victory, but not completely, because still, if there is a human life that is of infinite value that was created at conception— then even in rape, regardless of how that life was brought into existence, regardless of all the violence or, or you know, all the drama, all the oppression, the injustice that brought that human life into existence, none of that decreases its value, mm. his or her value. Yeah. And so even with rape, um, we have to say that human life that's completely dependent on us and did not ask to be brought into existence, um, that life should be protected. And there should be harsher laws on, on men that, that rape like that. And, and there should be huge ways to protect the women and the children conceived in, in rape. Um, you know, society should be, I, I was talking to my husband about this earlier. You look at all the old mores and society and all the old etiquette and everything. So much of that was geared around sort of protecting women from men <laughs> and to helping men channel their sexual, you know, energies. Mm. And we don't have that anymore. 
And so we need to get back to that. And laws can do that. Laws can really do that to hold men accountable when they do things like that to women um, against their will. Um, it won't be perfect, of course, and there will be abuse of the system. But um, so I would say that the, the pro-choice people, of course, would hate it. But the pro-life people, it would be mixed for them. It would be mixed. Yeah, yeah I, I think I agree most of what you're saying, but at the same time, I think half a loaf of bread is better than none. It would be a huge yeah. step forward, at least. It would be. It would be. It would be, absolutely. Well, um, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. That's I just agree. Well, let's talk some about the science, because we've been saying this for quite a while. You've been saying the start here that a new life comes into being at conception, right? Mm -hmm. Can you give us the case for that? Yes. Well, what happens when um, the the sperm meets the the egg? What what is formed has the the complete genome of the human being that the person that they will take into the rest of their life. So to us, it seems very abstract because we're thinking DNA, right? And it just, you know, you think that's just chemicals, you know, but no, that is, that's, that's that person's life. And so much their hair colors there, their eye color, their, you know, their, the, so their, their structure, their facial structures, their features, so much of that is just there. And we know that from, genetic studies. So that is a complete human life that's right there. And it's totally unique. It will never happen again. We can't make that life happen again. Um, and immediately, even before the newly formed zygote, that's what they call what's formed, before the zygote even reaches, so this happens not in the uterus, um, before it even reaches the uterus and attaches to the, the woman's uterus, the lining, the wall, it already is starting to um, go through cell differentiation. Mm -hmm. So it is already starting to form a human being like instantaneously. So it is just an amazing how life starts and gets going. There's not a pause button, but there's just this life that is going and developing and growing immediately. Now, this is according to pro-life scientists, right? No, I think that this would be scientists, period, <laughs> not just pro-life scientists. This is this is the science. You can't argue with it. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some people out there who are looking and saying, well, you know, we, the women, they have so many eggs there and they lose much more yeah. women they conceive. And heck, for the men, what are we going to say? It's like masturbation, mass murder in that case. I mean. Oh, oh, also the living cells and such. And yeah. So well, okay. This this is a fascinating topic because this is where this is where um, biology today, as Christians, we understand that biology is fallen. Right. Mm -hmm. We understand that there's definitely teleology in the system. There's design, but there are places where there's design breakdown, right? Where mm -hmm. we can look, I mean, we have cancer cells. What's the, what was the intention of cancer cells? Well, that's something that's gone wrong. And mm -hmm. so, yes, yeah, so you can have, um, these, you know, not every egg that a woman has is going to be turned into a baby. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the fact that the fact that you, 
do have intercourse, right? And it yeah. does bring in a sperm and an egg. Then a zygote is um, is made. And that's a human life right there. So the fact that she loses eggs, the fact that the man, not all of his sperm become babies, that's re that's just beside the point because they weren't doing the activity that brings about having a baby. And this is, this is one thing that um, it's been fascinating reading Chesterton because contraception was coming into um, uh, fashion in his day. And so he wrote against it because he was, afraid that what contraception was going to do and what many people argue today is it's it separates procreation from sex in such a way that when creation happens it's viewed as an accident right and mm. then you need to fix the accident and the fact that the fact that you remove that chance of having a baby by engaging in a certain activity, you're, we're sort of thinking of them as two different things when really they're the same thing. You're engaging in the activity that could produce a baby. Now, there are though, plenty of pro-life people on both sides of this spectrum, though, aren't there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, as far as contraception? Yeah. 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 No, and I myself am not, is probably... As far as like some people go to be completely against all contraception, but definitely the abortifacient kind, the kind that um, acts on a woman's body after um, a zygote has been formed, after a new human life is formed, and it acts such that that human life is aborted. Now, there are some people who say, well, how can we say this is a human life? Because sometimes a zygote at some stage in its life, undergoes something called twinning, where it splits into two, and then comes mm -hmm. back and joins together again. And that's object. Human lives don't tend to do that. I mean, most people I know don't have the ability to clone themselves and come back together again. Well, yeah, because they're not in that stage of their development where they can. They were they were at a stage of development in their life when they could at one point, and they either did or they didn't. But you know, I, when I am, uh, when I'm a child, there's certain things that I can't do that I can do when I'm, uh, when I'm a prepubescent child that I can do when I am post puberty. Right. So it's just really has to do with our stage of development. You know, I have to say, I'm kind of seeing right here thing. Dang it. I had a cool superpower at one point in time and I didn't know how to harness it. <laughs> you could have twinned yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Life would be so much easier now if only. Oh my goodness. I think that that brings up, you know, superpowers, but I think that we had a, we used to have a lot more control of our bodies than mm -hmm. we, we, we do now. Um, since the fall we've lost and then we're, we're continuing to lose it. I think Jesus shows us, especially in his incarnated body. I mean, his resurrected body, um, a, a, a power over nature that Perhaps we had before, at least to some degree, maybe not as great as him, because of course he's God. But um, I think we had a lot more control over our bodily functions than we do today. Now, as Christians, also some of us would say, "How can some people say how can we be against abortion when there are so many miscarriages that cure so many children?" I mean, it seems like God's not opposed to abortion, yeah. since he lets miscarriages happen so often. Well, that's the problem of evil there, right? 
you know, why do we have evil and suffering in the world? Miscarriages, is it God that causes it? Is it God that causes the tsunami that wipes out children? Um, that's the problem of evil. And the Christian answer is that we live in a fallen world. And those are miscarriages that happen um, from because of that, not because of um, human will and intention. And there's a big difference there. About how many pregnancies do end in miscarriage? Do you know? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the exact statistics on that. But um, I, yeah, I've heard different things. I heard that there's a lot of you know, um, a lot of miscarriages that women don't even know about. Right. So yeah, our system is definitely broken. And that's the, that's the recognition of that, that we try to ameliorate that. Right. We try to change that. We try to help women not have miscarriages because we value that life. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious if, you know, any research being done, because I'm thinking that, you know, go back several centuries or maybe even just one century brought and out in a pregnancy could be seen as a wonderful thing that could definitely put a woman at risk with so many things today if a woman gets pregnant unless there are some unusual circumstances with her and such she's not going to be thinking oh my gosh i could die in a few months or so people they don't work is there any research being done to change done on miscarriages the same way done on miscarriages what do you mean in the sense that you know women used to die from pregnancy now we've developed our science so much that we can keep them alive so they don't have to worry are we doing research now that's teaching us find ways we can prevent miscarriages and such i certainly hope so i certainly hope so um i i think so i think one of the reason one of the very good things um developments in our culture today you know we're a lot more open um, than we used to be about some things. We're a lot more open about um, one of the reasons that one of the things I care a lot about is mental health. People mm. used to hide their mm. depression and their mental health struggles. Um, that was sort of like, you don't talk, that was taboo. And I love that we can talk about those things now as someone who struggles with depression myself. Um, I think also it used to be that people didn't talk about adoptions. They would hide the adoptions. I'm glad that we talk about that now. I think that's probably a good thing. Um, the same thing about um, miscarriages. It was probably a thing that was taboo and you didn't talk about it. I'm not sure why people didn't talk about it, but it's now women can share more about it. And so um, there's all kinds of support groups and and things such as that, that we can um, get wiser about how to help women cope with Mm. um, miscarriages and how to um, hopefully the science behind Mm. it. I know there's a whole bunch in the fertility realm. Now, some of it I wouldn't agree with because some of it is, um, you know, unethical, um, in, in my view of how I view, um, human life, but, um, a lot of it is very good. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is the irony is that we recognize that women need help in suffering the loss of a child in a miscarriage, but most women that have abortions, they have nothing to go to. Mm -hmm. And the, um, depression rates for women, with, who have had abortion are extremely high, um, supposedly. So I don't have the exact statistics on that, but I've heard you know many reputable people talk about that. Um, the, the depression usually doesn't happen immediately. It's usually down the road yeah, where they I, begin to have regret, regret for it. I, I definitely agree with you on mental health issues. I'm not sure if you saw, but I even blogged on that topic yesterday. Oh, oh yesterday. Okay, yeah. Great. Because we, we devote 
on this show every April we have a show dedicated to autism awareness since I have to have Asperger's as does my wife mm-hmm. and she struggles with borderline personality disorder as well mm-hmm. and I just say yeah the church just does a horrible horrible job on this area yeah yeah and I'm so glad that you blogged on it yesterday because I think the holidays for me has all have always been a harder time especially right after Christmas I always feel a huge letdown and it's just a harder time of year so I'm glad that you blogged on it and yes it is an issue um, that we need to be a lot more open about a lot more sensitive about um and not so dismissive um so kudos to you for doing that yeah and i think you've also had a concern because i think a lot of women who struggle with abortion or even let's say unplanned pregnancy they Mm -hmm. are extremely hesitant to come to the church yes yeah so in all of this the unspoken thing is the is all of the drama and the circumstances that have led up to a single woman in an unplanned pregnancy. And there are just a myriad of things in our society that have made that more and more possible. The sexual revolution, just for one. But there's just been an enormous breakdown in really healthy relationships between men and women when it comes to romantic relationships and dating Mm -hmm. and, and such as that. And so there's a lot of Things that need to change culturally um, further, I guess, would that be further upstream from when a woman is, you know, contemplating abortion that we as a Christian community need to also focus on as well. But it still doesn't take off, you know, the um, it doesn't take away the immediate need to protect um, the life of a completely defenseless human being, which is the baby. You're talking about the way that men and women don't seem to have to behave romantically. And yeah. it, it, it's quite true. I see so many couples say, I mean, we live in an apartment complex. <clears throat> we have new couples come in sometimes. And yes. you have, have to wonder, if, um, are they married or yeah. not? Because some of them are doing that. And to me, I was just saying, when I was dating my wife, these kinds of things were obvious before I even proposed to her. Yeah. which was on Christmas Eve, I actually okay. called her parents beforehand and say, hey, I want to propose to your daughter. I'm going to ask her to marry me. Do I have the <laughs> blessing? So, yeah. My husband did the same. He took my dad out to dinner. And, and yeah, it's it, actually my husband and I were very unusual. So um, because he, he was he's 15 years older than me. And mm. when his colleagues found out that he was having, he was getting married, they were all excited for him and they wanted to throw him a surprise party. And he used to travel for these meetings, you know, all over the world. And he was having a meeting in LA and that's where they wanted to throw him this party. And they wanted to surprise him by flying me out. Well, I was like, well, should I do this? And I talked to our pastor at the time because I'm like, you know, I'm going to be in L.A. with him. And it was like a week before our wedding, you know, and um, he said, you know, I think it'll be fine. But I didn't realize that, oh, my gosh, I need to make sure they know that I need a separate hotel room. And so I told Mm -hmm. them and they were kind of shocked, like, 
Ugh. And it's another interesting thing is my my in-laws have several rental homes in, in our area. And over the decades, they've had these for decades. It's gotten harder and harder to rent out these homes because so many of these people come in. They want married couples and it's very hard to find married couples. And they they know for a fact that the unmarried couples are very unstable. They usually don't stay long. They are not very dependable renters. Um, it's just a, they have seen this change, you know, the sea change in the cultural mores. Um, it's very unusual to have, you know, an actually a married couple um, come in and certainly married couples. And a lot of them say, well, you know, they're engaged, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're still cohabitating, you know, so it's just, yeah. And, and typically the lower classes are affected by this more than the upper classes. Um, and they are the ones that tend to have more rates of abortion and, um, it just, it, it just affects them more. Yeah. I've, uh, had some time to talk about it. And even when Allie and I've been married for seven years and I'm nearly 10 years older than she is, mm-hmm. but when I've been married for nearly seven, we've been married seven years or so. I drive around with, we had someone talking with us about, she didn't know us, and said, how long have you been married? Seven years. Now it's been eight and a half years or so. I was like, wow, it's a long marriage. And <laughs> oh, probably gosh. a thing, yeah. I appreciate your comment, but another part of saying, that's really sad you consider seven years a yeah. long time. It really, really is. And so this really gets back to this is the thing that's so fascinating for me with my my writing my thesis on Chesterton is that he was dealing with the divorce. And many of the things that he was predicting actually have really come to pass. I haven't run across him actually making a prediction of abortion, but I can see the beginnings of the the, the thinking for abortion and a lot of the arguments that he's, he's resisting and he is, you know, speaking against. And, um, it is a, it's just, it's, it, society is going to move and we can't pretend like these things don't create an atmosphere and don't influence people and don't desensitize us. And we forget that so much of the problem with abortion really has to do with the breakdown in, um, really men and women, um, like, like I said before, being able to have healthier ways of relating romantically. Yeah. I remember about a year or so ago, we visited a group from the church we were attending at the time, and it was at their house that the leaders of the group that night, their house, they were hosting it, and they had their daughter come, and I'm pretty sure she was living with a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know at times so I started talking to her and she talked about this guy she was with and such. Mm-hmm. And I said, you going to get married or anything? He said, well, we might a few years down the road. He says he wants to travel first and things like that and such. <laughs> and <laughs> Why not that, together? What is marriage? How does marriage yeah, affect that anyway? <laughs> at that point, my red flags started going up immediately. Yeah. And I said, you know what he's saying really when he says that? What he's saying is he wants to have his fun first. Yep. Then yeah. he'll come be with you. And it gave him a big talk on the dangers of living together and things like that. And his dad was saying, we're hearing all this saying, dang it, I wish you could have come in here earlier because you're saying all these things I've been trying, <laughs> I've been telling her and she doesn't listen because, you know, 
parents. Yeah. But yeah. here you are saying them. Good for you. Good. Yeah. I, I think one of my things that, that my hypotheses today is we think we are so our culture thinks it's just so much more sophisticated when it comes to sex compared to our grandmothers and great grandmothers and grandfathers. You know, we think we know so much more, but I think we are actually much more naive when it mm. comes to sexual intimacy. We really are very naive about the power of sex. There is a reason why cultures had put it in the confines of a marriage. And is it really confines or is it actually more confined when it's not in a marriage? And that's kind of the way Chesterton approaches the whole issue. First of all, when you're dealing with something like an institution like marriage, there's a reason why it is the way it is. And we never seem to stop to ask, why did our ancestors and the older generations approach it this way. Maybe Before you take down that... a fence, look and see what it was put up for to begin with. Yes, that's Chesterton right there. Mm-hmm. And we don't today because we think we're so much wiser. I mean, well, we put a man on the moon and, mm-hmm. you know, we have these images coming from Hubble where we have science, science, science. We know so much more. Oh my gosh. I think we are so naive and basically like like junior high kids when it comes to understanding sex. And that's what the whole Me Too movement is showing. I mean, it's showing this. And it's showing that, no, nature is going to fight back. We can deny her all we want, (laughs) but biology is there and it's going to fight back. And, you know, there's a reason why cultures after culture and ultimately God, I want, I keep the word confine keeps coming up, but it's very unchestertonian to think of it as confining. Actually, it's liberating when you can have it, when you limit it to marriage, it's a, it's a limit that preserves, um, it's, um, growth, you could say, um, otherwise when it does not, it's not in marriage, it's stunted. And it's stunted and it remains at sort of a junior high level of knowledge. Mm. And so that poor girl, I mean, she was just very naive and very naive about what he was doing to her. And he was probably very naive himself (laughs) about Mm. what he was doing. So, yeah. Yeah. uh, We were talking with some, some, uh, um, Sean Kalaki, who was on my show last year, talking about, Joe was witness, an ex-Joe was witness. He was in town for a convention and wanted to meet me there. Mm-hmm. We went, ma'am, and somehow these kinds of topics came up. And I shared some that has, I've often shared about how several years ago, I remember going down Facebook and seeing one of my friends making posts and saying, you know, a problem in our culture is we think about sex way too much. And I replied, <laughs> said, no, no, you got it exactly wrong. We mm-hmm. think about it way too little. We yeah. fantasize about it. We talk about it. We watch it. We show mm-hmm. it. We dream about it. We just plain do it. But the last thing we seem to do is think about it. That is that is incredible. Uh, that reminds me of something that Chesterton said, too, about our culture has it, a curious insensibility to sex itself. Mm-hmm. And it's this sort of inability to really understand what it really is. Mm-hmm. And it it's very much goes along with what with what you were saying. That's, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. We don't think about it in the correct way. Yeah. We dream about it. We fantasize about it. We sort of make it to what we want it to be. 
Um, it's also very selfish. Sex is a very selfish thing in our culture. Um, it's not something that is a self-giving thing. Um, and see that if it were self-giving and it was a sign of a covenant between a man and a woman, the self-giving aspect of it this um, that's lost today is most dramatically seen in the, the push for abortion. Because having a child is a huge limitation, right? Mm -hmm. It's a huge responsibility and it's an act of huge self-giving. And our culture doesn't know how to do that anymore. We're, you know, you hear a lot of people say we're a very narcissistic culture, but I, I really think that we are. And, and abortion is, mm -hmm. is definitely um, evidence of it. Yeah, I personally theorize that if abortion had nothing whatsoever to do with our sex lives, I think most everyone would be mm -hmm. against it. Yeah, no, I think so too. I absolutely think so too. I think people don't want any limitation on that for some reason. And I guess there's a reason why sex was worshipped in, in cultures that have really become very, you know, um, uh, in cultures that were that were falling apart mm -hmm. um, and ancient Carthage and, and such as that. Um, and there's all sex was worshiped in this, those cultures as was child sacrifice. And so they go kind of hand in hand, um, unfortunately. And um, it, it, maybe it, again, it has to do with we're taking sex becomes something very self-focused and that self-giving aspect of it is lost between a man and a woman. So it's definitely going to be the child is, definitely going to be lost in all of that. Um, well, my reference to us not thinking about sex too much, I wish it was originally from me. It comes from Peter Crave, and Crave was influenced by uh, Lewis and Lewis by Shepard and such, but what you're telling me... I love me, him, yeah. But what you were just saying about me, it, I think it does show something, there is some truth behind our culture, because we live in a world where we have the most fascinating new technology we can do so many new things that could only have been dreamed about a hundred years ago or heck maybe even 50 years ago or so yes <laughs> and we still have all this and yet the number one thing we seem to have the most fascination with is that very thing god created in the very beginning <laughs> that's a really good point yeah nothing nothing we can create can can compare <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah no that's that's true that's true <laughs> Now, to return to the whole thing about abortion here with this, I think it, it really shows us that we don't really treat life as sacred anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've said before, in some ways, we're worse <clears throat> than the Canaanites. I mean, <clears throat> the Canaanites, yeah, they sacrificed their children, but when they sacrificed their children, as Eber was, they did it for the good of a new harvest and such. When we yeah. sacrifice our children, we do it because we're sacrificing them at the altar of convenience. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> for success. We're kind mm. of doing it for the harvest in a way, though. Um, when you think about the industrial world, we don't have the agrarian society. So, <sighs> you know, the industrial world does put demands on the family that maybe the agrarian society didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is a lot harder in some sense. I, and this is a whole nother line of argumentation. The, some things that we need to consider as Christians is how, um, you know, the whole idea of social justice really arose um, out of Christian thinking and trying to understand this move from the, 
you know, village life, agrarian society where people were much more independent to moving into the cities where people are much more interconnected and dependent on systems and, you know, employers and how the employers took the men out of the home in a way that they were much more integrated in the home before. Um, And then the pressures that it put on a woman to sustain that family was very different you know, and the pressures that put on the man to be the the breadwinner, but then also not to have any kind of stability um, of his own. You know, he was at the the beck and call of his employer. So the Industrial Revolution changed the family a lot, and so, um, in a sense, abortion is sort of um, fits into that in a sort of a way. But we don't really, we don't put it in religious terms like the Canaanites did. So yes, there is a coarseness to ours. We, we dehumanize even more. (laughs) And that's, that's our world though. You know, that's the scientism of our world. It's very dehumanizing. Um, you know, I, I heard another commentator, I can't remember who said that our, in the modern world, our value of life is fraying at the edges. It's fraying at the very beginning of life. And the very end, Um, we don't take care of our elderly people like we used to. And we don't take care of um, the unborn. And um, so, yeah, it's, 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 there's some connection with the Canaanites, but I agree with you. I think it's, it's even more scary today, Mm. Um, more dehumanizing. And I mean, you look at, you look at the atrocities of the 20th century, the, the gulags and the concentration camps, and it's pretty scary. What kind of things do you say to a woman who does accuse you of, you know, giving into the patriarchy and things like that? <laughs> oh my goodness! You know what? One thing I want to—I I try to say—is you know, I please don't dismiss me. You know, I, I, you know, have a voice and I have a perspective, but that, that unfortunately is a very hard one to overcome. And that's where postmodernism has seeped in. And so usually when I'm, someone is doing that to me, I'm usually dealing with someone who has been educated in the modern university and has taken enough humanities and, you know, classes in women's studies (laughs) and been infected by critical theory to such an extent that it's very hard to communicate with them because they have all these walls. And so they are just going to dismiss me. They're going to, they're going to say, well, you just don't know that what, what the experience is like of someone that, you know, in this sort of situation and you can't pass a law to affect them. That's going to affect them because you don't know what it's like. And, um, I still don't know what to say to someone like that other than to be patient with them and to time and time again, try to take them back to the humanity of the child and to how social thinking that's all rooted in social justice. But I think personhood theory, which they typically people like that are educated enough to use personhood theory to say, well, you know, they're, they're human, but they're not a person. I try to point out to them you know, logically how personhood theory actually undermines social justice itself. And it undermines feminism because most of the abortions that occur worldwide are of females. Females are afflicted in other countries much more than males are by abortion. So it Mm -hmm. is a feminist issue. Um, And so I try to lead them down that path 
um, thinking rationally because um, it's almost impossible to sort of deal rationally with that kind of thinking because I think it, it, it insulated itself from rational thinking in a way. I don't know if that makes sense, but mm. um, they're dismissing you so they don't have to engage with your rational arguments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't agree with that entirely. What? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that and the, the temptation is to get angry and impatient at that. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I try not to as best I can, because I think it's coming from a genuine place. It's genuinely wrong. <laughs> but um, a lot of the times those people are really driven by compassion. And um, you just have to be patient with them and, and hang in there. Well, I'd like to mind when at this point we're just using the Deeper Waters podcast. We got Rebecca Valerius here talking about abortion today. But if you're here next week, uh, George Brom is going to be my guest. My friend Clinton Wilcox, who's been on the show before, recommended he come on. I looked at some of his stuff. I was really good and asked if he wanted to come on. He's going to be my guest next week talking about, again, abortion. But for now, let's get back to Rebecca talking about this topic. You know, something I often say when I meet women, who say, who want to tell me, where since you're not a man, <laughs> you don't have any say in this. Men should not hold the opinion. And, I, and then I say, you know what? If that's what you really think, that's excellent. Let's go with that, okay? Roe v. Wade was decided by nine men. Let's toss that out since men should have no say whatsoever here. Well, and men are aborted. Boys are aborted, right? They're Mm -hmm. affected. Yeah, I have seen that used so many times. And usually, again, that person is coming from a very, they've been steeped in modern feminism. Um, and modern th- feminism is very much informed by critical theory and which is is neo-Marxism. Like, these are big words, but if you want to study more about critical theory, a really great person that's doing some really excellent research on it right now is Neil Shinvey. I don't know if you know who he is, but um, mm-hmm. he is, he is, go look up his Twitter account. He is actually a, I believe he's a a physical chemist by trade. He has a PhD in physical chemistry, but right now he finds himself sort of steeped in critical theory and he's doing a great job in, in unpacking it. But basically it's the idea that we live in a patriarchy and even, even if you aren't aware of it, you are patriarchal Nick. Um, and it's a conspiracy theory ultimately. So there's nothing you can say like conspiracy theories, everything proves it. Right. And so there's nothing you can say to, to, um, to deal with it. It's a very clever lie that Satan I think has used now, not that there's no truth in it because Satan always cloaks his lies and truth, (laughs) but, um, you absolutely do have a say. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with someone like that, who is, they're just shutting you down and it's Mm. very hard to get past a lot of times they're shutting you down. Well, let me just say (sighs) that I had to do a lot of research on feminism recently because I actually, I, I really didn't know a lot about it, but, um, one person that I found, actually several people that I really like, uh, they're talking about it, but one of them is Christina Hoff Summers. And she talks about these women's studies in schools and how these women will enter the women's studies programs and start studying feminism and all this stuff. And they come out 
depressed because they are seeing oppression everywhere. And what what something like critical theory does is it divides the world into oppressors and victims. And for a feminist, men are oppressors and women are victims. It's very black and white. And even when you are not actively and consciously oppressing, you're oppressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just this systemic patriarchy that's everywhere. It's under every, it's in every nook and cranny and you can find it under every rock. And so ultimately that person is walking around with a huge victim complex and they are ultimately to be pitied because it's a depressing way to live. And Christina Hoffschummer shows that most of these women were leaving these programs completely depressed and just, you know, very, um, um, angry at life. And so when someone dismisses you like that, that's, that might be someone you're dealing with that kind of person. And, um, there's really not much you can say to it. I I like your, what you say that the, um, you know, it was decided by Roe v. Wade was divided by nine men. Um, and you can point out all you want about how abortion really, helps men and how it actually can, there's connections between abortion and what's going on with me too, right? There's a direct connection there, (laughs) male sexuality going crazy, nothing to, you know, sort of tamper it. Um, and, but honestly, most of the time they won't listen to you because they've bought into the conspiracy and it's just very hard to reason with them. Yeah, I, I know we men are affected by this, and even before me, too, I mean, we I always yeah. practice being careful. We've got a neighbor, you know, from a complex, she's a single woman, dating mm-hmm. somebody happily, apparently. <laughs> but sometimes she might need me to come over and help with something, and if that time comes, I say, Allie, I want you to come over with me when I see yeah. this lady. Because I'm not going to be in another woman's apartment alone. Yeah. Of, and there are some men I know that I mean, there are kind of, uh, men who I'm sure are scared to just talk to any woman uh, nowadays because no. of me too. You go in, yeah. and like, gosh, you look very pretty today. Sexual <gasps> harassment, sexual harassment. I know, I know. It's like, it's like the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. Mm-hmm. And you know, the thing that I fear, Nick, mm-hmm. is that there's going to be a huge backlash and it's going to just go to the other extreme. Yeah. You know, it just seems like this world, at least our modern world operates on pendulums, right? There's mm-hmm. no, there's no reason in it. Right. Mm-hmm. And no guy, nothing to sort of, um, moderate our reactions. And so the me too movement now men are just like scared to even talk to women. <laughs> and I, I really do feel sorry for you guys because mm-hmm. you're, con- you don't know, I mean, we're all over the map already, you know, as yeah. women, and you don't know what to say to us. And I think it's very wise of you to to make sure Allie is there, and when you go into her apartment, because you just don't know these days. And um, the witch hunts. It is. Um, I heard actually uh, another person that I found myself going to a lot, who was discussing modern feminism is Jordan Peterson. And I hadn't heard of him before. I mean, mm. I kind of heard of him, but I hadn't listened much to him. And I was like, I kind of liked a lot of what he was saying yeah. it was what I was concluding as well. And, um, he recently had a really great lecture with Sir Roger. Sweden, if you know who he is, he is a philosopher out of England. 
And um, in it, I think he might have done a lot of work on the topic of beauty. Am I right? Yes, yes. He is a philosopher of aesthetics. So, yes, Mm -hmm. beauty. But he's also... He's also a, a political commentator in a lot of ways and a cultural commentator. And so it was a fascinating dialogue between um, Scruton and um, Peters uh, Peterson. I re- highly recommend it if you can find it. Um, but at one point, Jordan Peterson talks about the Me Too movement, and he goes into sort of the biology behind it. So the Me Too movement kind of has turned our whole judicial system on its head of innocent until proven guilty, right? It's guilty Mm -hmm. until proven innocent. But in a way, that's kind of the way women approach men. Naturally, we approach guys with this sort of, um, you're guilty and you have to prove yourself that you prove that you are not a predator, right? Because Mm -hmm. there are male predators out there. That's just undeniable. And that's just in male, more in male nature than women. Women can, not that we don't, you know, I can't be predators. We have our own ways of manipulating men. So we have our own sins, but men are more aggressive predators and women, you know, Peterson brought up the fact, well, and sex is more costly for a woman. So we do come up with this guilty and proven innocent, but unfortunately it's being sort of politicized in our culture. Right. And so mm-hmm. now it's just making it's so, so heightened and there's so much hysteria around it. You know, it's just, it's further, um, dis- complicating and eroding the relationship between the sexes. Um, that's always been, difficult, right? Since Adam and Eve, but it's so much more difficult in our culture today. And I think largely it's because sex has been let out of its proper place from where it was supposed to be in marriage. And, um, we've let it loose and it's not more freedom. In fact, it's, it's more tyranny and, um, less freedom. I also think some of it is we've lost sight of good philosophy or we don't really study essences anymore, what it means mm. for a thing to be yes. what it is. Because probably, I, I think a lot of difficulties, even in marriage relationships, is men, in such, to some extent, wish their wives were more like them, aside yes. from the looks and biology and such, of course. And women think men should be more like them and it's not going to happen i mean yes me too yeah men are always going to be for the most part the most sexually aggressive ones out there we're going to be much more physically focused we're going to notice beautiful women that's Mm -hmm. the way it is it's going to happen i love my wife i love her beauty and such but i'm still tempted when i go out into the world yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. And, and yeah, that's a, the essence, what is the essence of marriage? What is the essence of being a man and the Mm -hmm. essence of being a woman? Mm -hmm. And, um, and we've lost that definitely. And I think part of it is, you know, at least part of it is we women have denied a huge part of what it is to be a woman. And that is the incredible gift and danger and because it's a gift and a danger, it's a romance in a way of being able to carry a child and bring, um, have, you know, be pregnant. And, um, that is something that, um, is, is taking a huge hit with abortion is, is motherhood. Well, and a huge hit, 
um, not only from abortion, but from a lot of the feminist arguments for equality. We, de- we degrade ultimately what it is to be a woman and we elevate what it is to be a man. And the culture really loses what it is to be a woman. A lot of people talk today about our culture becoming very feminized. And I see that. But I also want to say that there's a loss of true femininity in our culture. And there's a devaluing of true femininity because the women are trying to be like men. Mm-hmm. And not that, you know, here I have a BS in biochemistry. I'm in sciences and I love the life of the mm-hmm. mind. You know, that's, I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking something about even things even more basic. And that's what it is to be feminine. One mm-hmm. of the biggest things is to be able to be a mother and to be mothering, um, whether it's your own children or others, you know, and that's something that's very, very much undervalued in our culture today. So, yeah, we don't think of essences anymore because we're sort of... <laughs> Our mind is, is very much infected by scientism, I think, um, which is a horrible philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we got to get back to that sort of scholastic tradition. That's why I love Chesterton. He's like a, he was a definitely scholastic and medieval in his philosophy. And of course, he wrote the most famous biography of Aquinas. And, mm-hmm. um, but I, we need to get back to that um, and, and have, have sort of a, a uh, post-medievalism, you know, <laughs> new and medievalism come up. Did you know the uh, Thomistic scholar Etienne Gerson hated uh, Chesterton's biography of Aquinas? Oh, did he? Yes, he <laughs> I've, did. I've, I've heard people criticize it, yes, it, because it's factually inaccurate and everything. Nope, yeah. nope, nope. He, he hated because he said, I've been studying Aquinas for 50 years, and I couldn't write a biography that good of him. Oh, you know, Chesterton had an incredible ability to get behind the surface information Mm -hmm. of something and get to the essence. He got to the essence of things. Mm -hmm. He got to the essence of Aquinas. He got to the essence of of St. Francis. He got to the essence of Charles Dickens and Jane Austen. Because I think he loved essences. He loved things. He loved things for themselves. And um, so when I I just got finished reading his incredible book, Man Alive, it's really funny and very deep. Um, But there's really a lot about the relationship between men and women in that book. And a lot of it has to do with being able to value those differences between men and women and not downplay them. Of course, they're irritating, <laughs> right? But mm-hmm. that's part of the character growth right, of marriage because you marry someone that is truly other than yourself. Yeah. And um, and it it forces you into that position. Philippians two, right, where you think of another's interests more than your own, and um, it's a great time of character building. <laughs> so yeah, we we want to do away with those differences and. Not that there are, aren't similarities between men and women, but there are key differences mm-hmm. that we, we try to ignore to our peril. You know, my wife and I, I like to joke about it. She doesn't like it so much when I joke about it, but about the <laughs> we never that, do. <laughs> how, we, how we marry be ever and such. Yeah. Uh, apparently there was a story that years ago she went to her mother and said, Mom, when I get married... I'm not going to make the same mistakes you made. I'm going to marry this big, beefy, rancher-type guy. 
if you've ever seen my profile picture, I am not that guy. <laughs> I'm going to marry a guy who can fix things around the house. Mm. Again, not me. <laughs> I am not going to marry a nerd unless he's Asian. And yes, total nerd right here. <laughs> I'm not, not gonna, Asian. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to marry anyone in ministry. Unless mm-hmm. he's a youth minister or a missionary to Japan. She was just setting herself up with all this, wasn't oh, she? Oh, wait till you get to the last one. The <laughs> last one is the best one of all. And I will never date or marry an apologist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she and, totally set herself up. <laughs> and as for me, uh, Allie, I think, is really completely different from what I would have had in mind in so many ways. And yet, you know, as I look back, I think that is exactly what I need, because yeah. one thing, I'm the big, heady, intellectual type, and sometimes mm-hmm. I'll go with her with a position and such, and tell her what you think, and I think this is, like, if we have a disagreement about something, we're arguing about something, and I'm saying, I am so right on this one, there is no way that she can be correct on this one, my thinking is solid, and I'll go <laughs> to her and tell her what I'm thinking, says, but what about this? Wow. <laughs> I had a thought of that one. Okay. But yeah, I mean, if I give a talk somewhere, one of the first things I do is go out and say, how did I do? Because yeah. if I went over her head, then I know I went over the heads of most of the people there. Yeah. Wow. See, you're a great, you're a great partnership. And that's mm-hmm. what marriage is. Mm-hmm. partnership, you know, it's a, and it's, it's an adventure really. Mm-hmm. And right. life is an adventure mm-hmm. and it's not one of the, one of the big arguments, you know, back to abortion that I hear from, you know, some of the, my most articulate, um, advo- friends that are advocates for, for abortion, they bring up suffering and they bring mm-hmm. up just how hard life is and that there's <laughs> suffering in it. And that, you know, having a child is a type of suffering and um, it's a very interesting definition of suffering. But there is some truth in the fact that, you know, it's it's hard. Life is hard. But just because things are hard doesn't mean that they lack meaning or they lack Mm -hmm. value. And marriage, that's one of the things I see Chesterton arguing against. And so the arguments that were used in favor of lax or divorce laws were, again, bringing out the exceptions, um, you know, like abortion does with rape, they were bringing out these horrible marriages and saying, well, look how horrible and how much suffering and how much oppression there is in this marriage. You know, we've got to have these laxer to, to help these situations. And, um, but, you know, he's saying, but that's horrible argument because of course, of course, marriage is, is challenging. You know, what do you want? You know, what do you expect it to be? You're taking two very different people and bringing them together for a life commitment. Of course, it's going to be challenging, but just because it's challenging doesn't mean that it's somehow wrong and somehow bad. And, you know, it sounds like you and Allie have been able to use your differences to, um, to help each other. Mm-hmm. And I see that with my husband and I too. We are very different in some ways, and I'm actually have learned to be very thankful for the ways he's different from me because he's very calm and logical. I married Spock, you know. I Spock was always my favorite. Well, I married Spock in a lot of ways, and I'm very thankful for that as a woman because um, 
sometimes it's it's not it's hard to reach that state of calm rational thinking and um so yeah it's it's good to be able to work past those things it's 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 growth it's character growth and yes mm-hmm. it's painful mm-hmm. and most of most of the good things in life come through work and pain so. <laughs> yep i remember years ago i was working at a walmart in charlotte and shortly after Alan, i got married miss girl came up to me and said you she was working there said you know you seem like this very spiritual wise type person and such i'm trying to learn forgiveness how to forgive someone and such what mm. what do you think is the best way to learn forgiveness i said get married you're going to spend most <laughs> of your time giving it or receiving it and i've spent a whole lot more time receiving it yes yes yeah and our our culture has lost that the art of forgiveness mm-hmm. and and really you see this this in feminism um there is this sort of there really is in studying it it's actually been kind of challenging for me in some ways because it's very depressing it's it you just see the they're just setting themselves up um and and there's just this hatred of of men hatred of the the, the thing that they need most mm. is that other that someone that's so different from them and men can give them things that that they can't get on mm. their own and they're missing out on it because they can't see past you know the the abusive types mm. and um they like the exception to find the rule for men Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's been happening with the Me Too movement. And I guess that's just something that we as humans tend to do. But it's really scary when we start letting our policy um, be, be guided by that kind of thinking. Um, um, yeah, I'd like to give a little preview of things coming up. <clears throat> also, at February, we are developing, we do try to focus around to love and marriage and sexual ethics and things of that sort. And the very first Fet Sun Saturday in February, Craig Keener is going to be on here again with his wife about their book Impossible Love, their love story. They had a, I won't be starting it soon, but I was saying their romance involved the usual difficulties that any couple has, you know, like an international civil war going on in your country and <laughs> international travel and things of that sort. Refugees so, and yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we all remember that when we were dating. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that's going to be coming up. But I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Wireless Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. And what we do around here is done with the support of people like you. And Friends, you have no idea how much it really warms me up inside to get kind words from you all and to have people who donate to the show because what I'm saying is, hey, we believe in what you're doing. We believe in this ministry and we want to support it. That means so much more than you can imagine and we really do need it. Your support can help us to be able to do more and more things and what we're doing, which is exactly what we'd like to be able to do. So if you're interested in supporting this kind of work, I really encourage you to go to our website at deeperwatersapologetics.com and there's a section there that a little sub thing on the side says help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now you go there and 
you click on that link, assuming you want to donate, which I hope you do, and you get taken to the ministry of risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, yes you have. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation, and when you do, you get in touch with me, or Mike, or Allie, or Debbie, one of us, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure, it will be made sure that we get that donation. It will be tax deductible entirely. You can also buy some ebooks that I have written or co written. Written include um, a Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed in the Days Christian. That's the only one so far that I've written entirely on my own. Uh, co written include books like God and Natural Disasters or Defying Inerrancy, along with now the new uh, Contextualizing Inerrancy or Groundless or Christian Answers of Risen Generations Questions. All of these are books that I've had a hand in here. And you can go and buy them on up through Amazon to get some portion. You can also buy the Mention of Ours Project book that I took part in. And that helps the work that I do with a mention of ours. And um, you can uh, also go and uh, buy some jewelry here. Rebecca, you like jewelry, don't you? <laughs> I do. What girl doesn't? <laughs> yeah, there are a few I've met who don't. But <laughs> I- I'm guessing if your hubby brought home some jewelry for you, you'd be very, very happy. Oh, I would. <laughs> Definitely. Guys, <laughs> you're hearing this because Rebecca is like most women out there. <laughs> you want to put a smile on her heart, on her face, get some jewelry. And especially, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up. Some of you guys might mm-hmm. want to pop the question on Valentine's Day. <laughs> but you can go and buy jewelry from our store at Premier Jewelers. Have a lady who runs that. And whatever you buy... 25% of it goes to people waters. Just let me know. Guys, remember of the world, I've always given you a show. You can buy something special of that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that you recently did with her. <laughs> or you can buy something special of that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. The future ones. <laughs> oh, yes. They, 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 they are coming, aren't they? <laughs> Oh, it's 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 mutual, right? <laughs> Women do it too, but and, yes. <laughs> and guys, um, if if some of you out there can't do that kind of thing, I understand. Sometimes money's tight for people and such. Go on, go on iTunes and leave a positive review for Deeper Waters podcast. I really love seeing that. I was just checking last night and saw there was a new one, and got so excited just to see a new one. And it really makes the day, so please consider doing this for Deeper Waters. Now, Rebecca, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, um, one of them that that comes to mind that's very near to my heart is a ministry that I was recently a part of. I'm taking a break from right now, but um, Mama Bear Apologetics. Um mm. Yes, it is an apologetics ministry started by Hillary Ferrer um, that just is reaching a much needed demographic in the apologetics community, moms. Mm. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of women 
um, there's more and more women in the apologetics community, but there's a lot, um, a need for apologetics material really aimed at helping moms because, um, moms, especially of young children and, um, older tend to spend most of their time, especially in the Christian community with their children. A lot of them are homeschooling and Hillary just, Hillary and her husband, John have always had a heart for keeping kids, um, in the faith, especially, you know, helping them be equipped when they go to college. And so she started this ministry a few years ago. It has a podcast. There's a book coming out that I got to be a part of. Um, it's coming out in, um, June, I believe, with Harvest House Publishers um, that's aimed directly at moms. We talk about naturalism, feminism, postmodernism in it, but it's all broken down into mom language, language for the busy mom. So it's um, uh, mamabearapologetics.com is a website, and there's a donate button there. Yeah, that sounds like something I might need to get in touch with them. See if they'd like to come on the show sometime. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, let's return to the topic of abortion, because what you said, I think it's kind of like a great segue to get into it, because, I mean, I, when I'm interviewing someone on the show, sometimes I switch back and forth between devil's advocate and being staunch supporter. So <laughs> I noticed start, that. <laughs> I, was start, I was playing more devil's advocate, but based on what you said recently, before the but call for donations such, I do think that really uh, abortion is one of the most unfeminine things a woman can yeah. do because yeah. it's really denying her very femininity. The fact that she's able to give birth, it seems like in some ways she's trying to be more like a man instead. Yeah. And this is really shocking with feminists. Yeah, it's very unfeminine in that way. And it's very unfeminine in the sense that even for for staunch feminists who um, want to protect the the most vulnerable people in society, um, I don't know, a few years ago, if you remember the Women's March, um, you know, when when I was working with the Mama Bear Apologetics, we did a podcast on it and we had to go to their website and look up all their their aims, the the ladies that started the Women's March and that they wanted to start this whole movement and their aims were, you know, a lot of them, it was very politically leftist, but it's that political leftist that really wants to try to help the most, who they see as the most vulnerable and the weakest members of society. And that's wonderful, but they are overlooking human life at its most vulnerable. And um, it is very feminine to care for children. It's very feminine to uh, be a mother and to be motherly, even when you don't have your own children. Women are teachers, women, there's just a connection of an ability that women have with children that not that men don't have it and men mm. can't have it, but yeah. it comes more naturally to women. Now, a feminist might say, well, that's cultural patriarchy conditioning, but I think it's biology. Mm. And um, it, at the heart is biology. But regardless of whether it's a combination of it, it is denying something that's a part yeah. of us. And I think women ultimately hurt themselves when mm. they deny this. And they hold, they hurt culture because culture, our culture needs women like that. And when it doesn't have it, um, you know, we have to think about how everyone is affected. Yeah, I agree entirely. I mean, as a man, I know as the fascination my wife has with children. Mm-hmm. And for me, I don't share that fascination. 
thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's just not in me. And something I've talked with other guys, I said, you know, I, I want to ask you guys this. I mean, as a guy, I really don't see this kind of thing drawing me in so yeah. much. But is it the kind of thing that does change when you become your own a parent of your own and such and something else. Yep, it changes when you become yeah. a parent. Durbin, you don't really care about kids. Once you become a parent, you kid you care. Yeah. I will say too that 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 desire in a woman there of course there's a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. And I always sort of liked children in the abstract <laughs> before mm-hmm. I had my own. Now I I you know I did I, I also was trained in ballet and so when I was in college I taught ballet to young children and I enjoyed it and I liked the children, but you know I liked it they went home and, <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't quite, you know, I like, you know, enjoyed spending time with them, but it was totally different the moment I had my firstborn. And I even remember like, even when I was pregnant, it was still sort of in the abstract, but the moment I had her and they like took her just across the room to weigh her, I was like, oh, where are they taking her? <laughs> and that monitor that I just never knew I had just came out of me. So, you know, there's biology, that part of that's biological, right? And mm. we say bi- biological as if it's merely biological, but it's not merely biological because it's ultimately God's design, right? Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I say that it, it can exist on a spectrum in women. And some women, even as mothers, you know, they don't relate to their young children as well as they do to their older children. So it really, there's personality differences and everything, but ultimately it still is a very feminine thing. And, um, I even, you know, can say of women that I have known that aren't married, they still have a very mothering presence, whether it's to their students or to maybe they take care of animals. Um, they, they're very, they just bring something that a man doesn't bring Mm -hmm. and a type of care that's very unique and needed that, that men just don't bring and men bring their own, you know, it's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Men, uh, I think what you were talking about, about how things change and such, once you enter into the union and such, it, it really made sense to me because, you know, when you talk about marriage, I'll tell people, you know, before I got married, I was very pro-marriage, wanted to defend marriage, wanted to show marriage is meant to be a man and woman. Mm-hmm. Then I got married and I became pro-pro-marriage. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you don't want people to miss out on it, right? I mean, Absolutely. Yeah, even though you know how hard it is. It's mm-hmm. one of those limitations that actually create a, a, a opportunity for enlargement and growth mm-hmm. and beyond your imagination. It's one of those things. It's like, like it's bigger on the inside than it looks from the outside. It's like Dr. Who's little, you know, the TARDIS, you walk on the inside and it's bigger. That's kind of way marriage is. It's bigger on the inside than it looks from the outside. Mm-hmm. And same with parenthood. And it is definitely challenging. And, um, I will not, I will not, um, underestimate the challenges that women go through and a woman in a a single woman in an unplanned, unplanned pregnancy is a very scary place. And, um, we as a Christian community that are pro-life, um, 
have to be very, very cognizant of that and do everything we can to help. And we live in a culture today, one of the good developments in our culture. I love to read 19th century literature and old literature. And a lot of that, it was very taboo to get pregnant. And if you did, you were sort of cast out and the child was labeled um, a bastard and was mm-hmm. looked down on for the rest of their life. Yeah. And yeah, it was just horrible. And so we, we don't have those problems anymore where women, you know, they still feel the shame, but we don't have a culture that's just oppressing them, but we shouldn't forget them either and forget their struggles and forget and forget the fact that we do live in this culture where there's been a huge breakdown in the relationship between men and women. And we have to be ready to come alongside these women. And I do. I know a lot of um, my brother-in-law has several um, pro-life um, ministries. Um, he himself um, was participant in the abortion of his own child. Um, mm. and as a, as a young man with his girlfriend, and since then he's just become very pro-life and he has these two ministries that are, um, one of them is just starting. Another one is very, um, established, but they do more than just keep the child alive. They keep the woman alive. They keep the woman, um, um, cared for. And that's what we need to do. That's one of the criticisms that I hear from pro-choice people. Well, all you do is you care about the baby. You don't care about the woman. And we need to prove them wrong. And I think a lot of times they say that they don't, they don't know, you know, the true statistics out there on, on, um, pro-life organizations, what they really do for women, um, and unplanned pregnancies. But, um, it's still something that we need to be cognizant of. You know, I was going to be asking you about that, so I'm really glad you brought it up. I mean, what kinds of things, what kind of things are we doing right now, and what kind of things do we need to be doing more of? I would say, um, well, I know like my my brother-in-law's organization, he has this entire website called AmericanPregnancy.org, and it goes, it helps a woman just with information, information on pregnancy. Like I used it when I was pregnant and I was able to follow the development of my baby in every week. And that was fun because I got updates from them and say, this is how big your baby is this week. And then so many things on taking care of the baby. Um, that's more information input that he does. Um, I just learned of a really neat organization down in a poor part of Dallas, um, and a, a poor demographic where a woman is um, created a clinic of doulas of women that um, help underprivileged women through their pregnancies because there is a higher rate of um, miscarriage and um, mothers dying in pregnancy in these lower income families. And a lot of that just has to do with lack of resources and abilities to really um, take care of themselves. They are just not healthier anyway. And so um, this woman is trying to counteract that with um, just a clinic that just is totally, it. She, it's not overtly Christian, even though she is one. And she it's it's in place where women can come and have a doula just help them throughout their whole pregnancy. A doula is like a pregnancy coach. Mm. And um, I just thought that was amazing. It would be wonderful if 
more and we had more of those and especially in the low income areas because those are the people that are affected the most um definitely those are the that's the higher rates of abortion are there um so actually have a place where we don't just force the woman to have the baby but we help her have the baby you know it's mm-hmm. it's helping her and helping her get to enjoy being a mother and um so, yeah, there are definitely people out there that are doing it, but I'm sure there could be more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think we also need to focus on what we as a church can offer exclusively that no one else can, mm. and that's forgiveness. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, shame on the church for not doing that in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, shame on us for being judgmental. And, um, that's, that goes against the essence of the cross. Right. Um, I recently gave a talk on the social justice movement and abortion and the gospel. And this, it was a, the, the conference was the gospel and the social justice movement. And, um, I was looking at the gospel. What is the gospel? We have the gospel. We have the good news. We have the gospel is what is going to reconcile the relationship between mother and child. I mean, Jesus was an embryo, right? He was a newly formed mm-hmm. zygote at one point. God was a zygote, right? You know, I mean, I'm assuming that's how he did it. <laughs> so, you know, he, he, when God entered creation, he declared every bit of it worthy of saving. And that includes, um, an unplanned pregnancy. And so, but the gospel also can help the women that are suffering, right? Because it can give meaning to their suffering. Um, it gives them forgiveness for the, maybe their own choices that got them into that and the position that they're in. And it gives their whole life a meaning. So how can it not help them through, um, an unplanned pregnancy, which is very scary. I mean, when, I got pregnant. I was very scared. I didn't know if I could be a mother. I, even after I had my child, I mean, I, I mentioned at the beginning that that's when I went into a huge time of spiritual doubt. Um, it really forced me back on my relationship with the Lord. And I found my faith wasn't strong enough because here I had this child that I had to protect. And did I really believe in God? Did I really believe that he was going to take care of her and he was going to take care of me no matter what? And it forced me to dig deeper into my faith. So I will say it's not an easy thing, but, um, you know, it's, it's, we need to be more aware of that as a church and not downplay, you know, how scary pregnancy is. And we need to be very aware of the, how the modern world is uniquely hard for mothers, maybe harder than it was in the past. We're very, we live in a very individualistic culture. I mean, I live on a street here in a suburb of Dallas, north of Dallas, and I hardly know any of my neighbors, <laughs> you know, and it, it's a sleepy, it's a sleeper community. People go to work in the city and they come back in the evening and um, people live very disconnected lives from community. So when I had my firstborn, I felt very isolated. Our church was 30 minutes away and it was a small church. I was one of the first to have a child in a while. They had to reopen the nursery for it. <laughs> and even though it was a wonderful church, it was still, I felt very isolated as a mom. And even though I had the internet and all kinds of information, none of that helped. I needed emotional support. 
and I just mm-hmm. didn't have it. And postpartum postpartum depression levels are higher than they've ever been. Depression levels are higher. Suicide levels are higher. So this plays right into the, you know, the mental health breakdown of our culture. So all these things play into a woman's feeling like abortion is her only option. And we as a Mm -hmm. church need to be very vocal about helping others through that. Not only women in depression, uh, women in pregnancies, but, you know, all uh, mental health um, issues as well. So, and I'll, I'll think so much of that is related to the breakdown of society and the breakdown of family. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we need to, we just need to be more forgiving, more graceful and more wise, wise as serpents, right? Mm-hmm. I also think it's worthwhile to note that the women do need forgiveness, but like I think you said with your brother-in-law, Mm-hmm. such. Yeah. Men need forgiveness absolutely. too many times. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Yes. They, they absolutely need forgiveness. That's one of the things, like I said before in the feminism movement, I saw nothing that they were just setting this, just this total hatred of men up. We you know it's this reverse misogyny or what was it called when it's, I forget the word when it's a, you, you, Androgyny. androgyny or something, whatever, where you hate the men. Um, and the word escapes me, but yeah, it's, it's, it's that same sort of thing that is a total lack of forgiveness and grace. But of course you wouldn't expect it's, it's hard enough as Christians to understand grace and forgiveness. Right. And we have the help of the Holy spirit. So how much harder mm-hmm. it is for our secular culture. That I mean, I know many men struggle with speaking with the leaders at our celebrate recovery. He's openly mm-hmm. said in his meetings many times about how he uh, he provided the means for someone to get an abortion mm-hmm. when he was dating. I think was and such. Yeah, and I think it's also really good for men to be able to say those kinds of things out loud. For women to be able to say those kinds of things out loud. To, yeah, so I was gonna know. You're not alone. We've done this too. Yeah, that's one of the things that the enemy likes to do to make you feel alone and you're the only one and you're somehow worse mm-hmm. than everyone else, right? You you're somehow mm-hmm. you your sin, like you are like you you really wrote the book on sin. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, it's he 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 does that. He does that a lot. So uh being vocal about it, being open about it is very important. Mm-hmm. What kinds of things can we be doing politically on the topic of abortion? I say fighting it. I am, I am, I am no, I have no qualms saying that I am a one issue voter. Um, Seriously, I know people make fun of that on the other side of the aisle, but I, it's just such an important issue to me. It is just, if a, if a culture does not know how to value life, how can it get anything else right? How it, that's just such a fundamental core issue that to me, it's, it's indicative. It's one of those sort of litmus, litmus things, litmus tests. If it can't understand this, it can't get anything else. Now I hear, I have some dear friends that are very far left politically that are very pro-choice and they will say, well, you conservatives who support pro-life issues, then, you know, starve children, let children go to bed starving and, and such as that. And, you know, it's a huge accusation um, which it's easy, it's easy to say, but it's really hard to counter. But, um, 
because it takes more than a meme or a tweet. But, um, you know, we need to, but there's truth in the, the fact that we need to be consistent, but it's still, you know, if we value life, we value life at all stages. Um, I'm being challenged by that in a unique way because my parents are aging. Um, we just moved them five minutes from us. My father is being diagnosed with Parkinson's and my mom has a, um, a chronic illness. So mm. I'm doing a lot of their care right now and it's hard. It's very, very, very hard. And it's actually physically and emotionally trying on me. I am tired. I, you know, it's very, very hard, but I keep one day I was helping my dad get out of the car because he can, he has, he can barely walk. And I had a, a stranger just came up to me and said, what you are doing is right because he did this for you when you couldn't walk when you were a child. And he just said this to me out of the blue and it's exactly what I needed to hear. And I'm like, yes, but even, even if he didn't do this for me, it's still right. You know, this is what you do. You take care of human life regardless, even if it, even if it puts, extends you to the limits of your being, you do that. That's how much you value human life. And, um, so, I see as a culture that it's a very important issue. So politically, I say we do everything we can. Your what, your scenario that you mentioned earlier about, you know, getting rid of elective abortions. I think that's that would be a wonderful step. Um, I think laws can be written such that it protects women still because, you know, the, the abortion advocates want to say, oh, well, it's going to end up. They want to try to make it seem like it's going to laws like that are going to end up hurting women as if a law can't be written such that it would try to avoid it. Of course, no law is perfect, right? Um, mm. But, um, yeah, uh, politically we do we do everything we can. Now, I have to say, I think the new administration, the Trump administration, mm-hmm. has given me a lot of help yeah. on this end. I mean, especially considering we've got Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court now, who is pro-life, and before too long we could have like a six-three majority on yeah. there and such. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they really how pro-life they really are. You know, mm-hmm. when that comes, and you know, are they? Yeah, yeah. I hope. I, yeah, there's a part of me that's just really cynical <laughs> about politics. Yeah. I actually, I tend to like these days. I've kind of backed off from following a lot of it. I let my husband do that because he can deal with it a lot better than I can. I get depressed too easily, but. I, I have heard there's been a lot more encouraging things happen. And of course, the other side, just the the screaming and the hysteria. Well, it's kind of it's just it's getting worse. So it's it's very hard to hard to listen in on all that. But um, yeah, we can just keep hoping and keep praying. So I think that politically we need to be active, but I think individually we need to be active as well. Um, and church-wise, as, as, as the church. You know, something that my wife and I were talking about just a few days ago was that the church seems to get up and get active politically when it matters to them. And that's yeah. considered, for instance, when Duck Dynasty was taken off the air, uh, there was a Facebook page for too long, and you had yeah. well over a million likes for protesting. Yeah. And, uh-huh. well, you know, <clears throat> the church won this one. So we took this great victory that we had, this power that we displayed to get a TV show back on the air. And with that great moment, and we went and we uh, did absolutely nothing yeah. after that. And we did the same thing in Chick-fil-A Day. 
That would have been a great statement to award. It was a great statement, but mm-hmm. we didn't do anything with it. Well, that was the easy stuff to do, right? To start yeah. a Facebook page, to go to Chick-fil-A. The harder thing is to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. The harder thing is to love that person in the street that you actually see their face. It's much easier to love things in the abstract. We all do that. Mm-hmm. And so how are we in our own community? And this is like one of the things that I think, you know, I always try to look at something that I disagree with and find the truth in it. And so when I was researching critical theory, um, that's what most people are taught in the universities these days in the humanities and the social sciences, this critical theory, which breaks the world into oppressors and victims. And you have all these oppressed groups, um, Really what critical, how the church could use critical theory is to look at it because what the critical theory teaches us is who our neighbor is and what they're struggling with, what their unique struggles are. Now we don't agree with everything like they're, they're, they're out what we don't agree with how they use that knowledge and how they view that knowledge as, you know, some, how someone's a victim and they can't do anything, but that's how we can learn how to know what our neighbor's needs are. And that's something that's very hard to, at least hard. Like I said, I live in this suburban community where I hardly know anyone on my street. It's really hard to get to know people. It's hard, especially people in different demographics and critical theory can show us this, show us that the um, black community is struggling with health issues, these unique health issues and, and things like that. And how as a church, we can maybe help them because humans helping humans is always going to be much better than the government, right? That's a very basic conservative principle. The human the people, the individuals do it much better than a bureaucracy. Um, and sometimes if the church is not doing it, the bureaucracy has to step in. So we can use that knowledge to help us, you know, go into our neighborhoods and individually work with people and, and help them. I know there's this, um, really neat ministry called Bonton in our area. There's this part of Dallas called Bonton that is just the poorest, the most violent area. And these people went in and um, started teaching them how to garden and create these community gardens where they could have sustainable food and cheap food. And they all working together to help get healthier food in there. And it's just an incredible thing. um, If you look it up, but that, that was the church that is like actually, you know, much more than a Facebook page. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And then another way is just to talk with our neighbors. And a lot of that happens on social media today. And not that it's all bad. We can redeem it by how we interact on social media. Um, and always trying to move those interactions to real in-person incarnational, you know, um, interactions where we try to change hearts. Um, that's always a better way. Um, than not, you know, because political power will come and go. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's corrupting ultimately too. We have to be really careful as a church not to be corrupted by it. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I say still, it needs to be both. We need to, we need to not forget our neighbor though. Okay. We've only got a couple minutes left of interview time and such. What would you say to the young woman who might be listening to this show and is seriously considering abortion? Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) You really put me on the spot with that one. Oh, my goodness. I would say if I, I would 
do everything I can to connect them with an organization that can speak to her of alternatives. And I could, I would point her to places that she could go for real support. And if I was talking to her personally, I would feel obligated to support her as well. I would feel like she was, I was talking to her for a reason that God put connected our lives for a reason. And I need to do everything I can to help her get through the pregnancy because having that child, that child is the best thing that she can do to redeem everything that she's been through to get her to that point having the child and giving, choosing life will redeem the situation and um, that she can get through it. And there are places to go. And um, definitely, if she is not a believer, I will give her the gospel of the Lord and tell about his own suffering and how he suffered for us, um, the, how he forgives us, how the cross is, is the way that um, God has shown that we are forgiven in him. And, um, and that, that cross will, that God suffered for us, then she can suffer for her child, um, to bring her child into the world. Well, Becca, I'd like to thank you for coming on here. If, uh, if someone wants to find out more about you and work that you're doing, do you have a blog website, um, email way people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Yeah, I do. I have a website that I started um, when I started a little bit shortly after I started my program at HBU. It's called alongthebeam.com and that has as a reference to something C.S. Lewis wrote. But I have a lot of my writings on that. Um, I have some work that I did with Mama Bear Apologetics. Again, I just recommend you looking that up. I um, did a lot of podcasts with Hillary. Um and yeah, you can contact me through um, my along the beam. Is that reference to what CS3 was having about a beam of light and following it alone? Yes. Well, the no, it has it. It, it comes from an essay he did, um, meditation in a tool shed, and it, yeah. it's really about you have to look at a light, but you also have to look along it as well. And it really has a lot to do with we don't just think of Christian Christianity in intellectual terms; we live it as well. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, and it, it made a huge impact on me. So. But yeah, that's where you can find me. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave Dave with the Deeper Waters audience? Um, no, I just thank you for having me on. And I love that you're dedicating this whole month to abortion. And I just I hope if there's anyone listening that they just honestly um, consider uh, what we have said and, and listen for the rest of your month here. Um, sounds like you've got some great people coming on. Um and uh, just think deeply, think, think deeply about abortion and how it's affected our culture. And um, yeah, and thank you for having me on, Nick. And aren't you going to be speaking at a, a conference sometime soon on this kind of topic? Um, actually, I was scheduled to speak at the Women in Apologetics Conference. I'll put in a plug for that. That's actually coming up next weekend. But um, at the last minute, I had to back out. I had some things come up, so I'm actually not speaking on it. Um, but yeah, but okay. please, to, I well, think they'll be live streaming that conference too. So. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Okay, I hope so. <coughs> Next my when that next week we're gonna have George Palm on talking about topic of abortion. <coughs> Sorry about my son, everyone. About the topic of abortion as well. But for now, I'm Nick Peters and I'm signing off.